Looks like they beat you. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. I want to thank so many of you who this past week have been a help and support to my family in the passing of my dad. Uh, just an outpour of God's love. I'm so thankful for each one of you. God's been good and faithful. I wonder if you remember our theme verse last Sunday morning in Bible Hour. I've been able to experience it very much this week. For it's not by what? It's not by might. It's not by power. But what is it by? My spirit, God says. His spirit, the Holy Spirit that helps us. And I have experienced his spirit today. And we're going to learn a little bit more this week about the spirit of God and how he works in our lives, how he's worked in history and the difference it can make. Before we dig in to the book of Esther, could we stop and pray again? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the history you have recorded for us. I pray that your spirit would move in our minds and hearts today and help us to see application from this history that will make a difference in our lives today. I pray that we would be admonished by your words, that we would know how to live in your spirit. We need your help. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Again, you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought we were in Ezra. Yes, we are, but Zechariah is the preacher of Ezra, and so is Haggai. And so much of the spiritual significance of Ezra comes from Zechariah and Haggai. And the most famous verses in Zechariah are found in chapter 4 in verse 6. When God spoke through this prophet to Zerubbabel declaring that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Somebody remind me, what was the job Zerubbabel had to do? What was the job he had to do? To build the temple, rebuild the temple. It lie in ruins. It was a big job. Will you flash back in time with me? How many of you remember 70 years ago? There's a few of you. Aren't you going to raise your hand? You don't remember two. He's being honest. He doesn't remember two. My, how many of you remember 70 years ago? Most of you don't. Well, 70 years ago is a little bit fresh in my mind because my dad was 74 years old. So about that 70 years ago. You know, a lot of things have changed in 70 years. A lot of things have changed. Now, can you just imagine in the days here of Zerubbabel and Joshua, who they were and what they were experiencing? Of all the people, put yourself in their situation. Think for a moment of somebody you know who was alive 70 years ago. Go back in your mind and picture where they were and what they were doing, even if it was yourself. 
what the world was like. You got somebody in mind? Owen, who do you have in mind? Oh, yeah, he's thinking of you. So you'll have to tell him what it was like 70 years ago. You got that? You know, I was thinking here of who in this church would be the most parallel to what was going on here in Ezra. And as I sit here and I know some of your stories, um, there's a few of you who might have a little bit of a connection here. So let's bring it to modern, modern world. Um, let's see. Shalom, can you come on up here and help me? You want to come up on here? And um, is Benjamin here? Or is that just Joseph back there? Hey, Joseph, you want to come help me? Anybody have any ideas why I picked these two helpers? Hmm, get thinking. Think Ezra. Think the history. Why might I have picked these two? I left you in on a little secret. Where was your great-grandfather born? You don't know? Go ask somebody over there who does and find out and come back. Where was your great-grandfather born? In Kenya. In Kenya. That's a long ways away, isn't it? Yeah. You have any plans on going back? Well, probably to visit. Someday. Just to visit. How about to live? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not, he says. Where? Netherlands. In the Netherlands. Does somebody know what year he immigrated? It was probably about within 70 to 80 years ago, right? Huh? It was in 48, 74 years ago. So about 74 years ago. So about 70 years ago, your great-grandpa moved to the United States of America. Now, do you, know any, do you have any friends back in the Netherlands? Any family? Anybody you know? So what would you think it, of it if Ezra, well, it wouldn't be of Ezra here, but if, if Zerubbabel showed up and said, hey, go back to the Netherlands. What do you think of that? She doesn't know. Maybe I should ask some of the older ones in the family. What would you think if all of a sudden somebody showed up and says, yeah, I know your great-grandfather immigrated here 74 years ago, but it's, it's time for you and your whole family to go back. You'd be like, huh? Imagine it for you. Go back to Kenya. Not so much, he said. Can you all identify with these two? Put yourself in their shoes. After 70 years, your family came from a place. Would you want to just leave your job, leave your family, leave all your friends, your neighborhood, just get up and go to a place like you've never heard of hardly? You want to do that? Nope. Well, you know what? There were lots of people in the days of Zerubbabel who felt just like you. And you. How about all of you? Who was it 75 years ago or 70 years ago? Where was your family? You know, I have this weird privilege of living in the same square mile that my family has lived for seven generations. Seven generations my family has lived in the same square mile. I moved out for a few, few years and moved right back into that same square mile. Seven generations. Thank you guys for your help. Do you have that visualization now, modernized? How would you like to leave it? I mean, think about it. You have 
businesses established, careers established, homes built, friends, all of this community you've developed in Babylon or in Shushan, in Persia. And, oh, by the way, you don't want to go back to whatever that land was. Because I don't know what the Netherlands is like. Maybe somebody knows what the place is like back there. Or maybe you know what it's like there in Kenya. But um, I'll give you a little hint. In Judah, it was a disaster. Everything was in ruins. It had been, for the most part, abandoned. Seventy years had gone by. The houses that were still there were all grown up. I mean, if you ever go to ghost towns, I, it's, just, it's just really creepy. That's what Jerusalem was like. Nobody would have wanted to go back to Jerusalem. But you know, God had been saying for more than 70 years, you need to go back. You need to go back. Now can you identify why some of them didn't want to go back? What connection do I have to that? Well, I'll tell you their connection. Their connection was their God, and that that was a guaranteed promised land of an eternal promise. Look in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. And what was this proclamation? Go back to your land. You are free to go back to your land. You are free to take the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar raided from your temple. You are free to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we read about this and we look at it and we say, yeah, why wouldn't they go back? Well, think for a moment here of Shalom again. Why would she go back? Why would they go back? Well, the simple answer is, is because God had commanded it. And now the king was stirred up by the spirit of Cyrus to decree that they could go back. Would they go back? Would they go back? Why would they? And would they? How many of you think people went back? Oh, you guys all are right there being realists. Why would they go back? So it's no surprise nobody went back, right? You know, Mordecai, he heard about this. Yeah, no thank you. Not going. I mean, Hadassah about this time would have maybe been about Shalom's age. No, not going back. No interest in going back. That place is just waste. Desert. Deserted. But I'd like to bring your attention to two parallel truths that are in here. Can you tell me who the key player is in verse 1 and who the key player is in verse 5? You look in your Bibles. 
You look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, and you see if you can find out who the key person is. When you know who the key person is, look up at me. We've got lots of people, don't we? We've got Cyrus, we've got Jeremiah, we've got the chief of the fathers, the priests, the Levites. Did I miss anybody? Who's the key person in verse 1 and 5? God is. Specifically, his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, and the Spirit of God raised up those to go back. I got a question for myself and for you. How has the Spirit stirred up your heart this past week or just this morning? How has He stirred you up because I'm going to give you a little secret. He's not dead. He's still very much alive, and he's still very much active, and he is still moving among men. So this morning, how has he stirred you? I'm not asking you to raise your hand and tell everybody, but I am beseeching you. I'm begging you to think and ask yourself, have I even been conscious of the stirring of the Spirit this morning in my heart? I'm going to tell you ahead of the story. There were almost 50,000 people who went back to Jerusalem, those whom the Spirit had stirred up. And you know, as we read in Zechariah and Haggai, and then we read of the prophecies of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, and the commands that were already given regarding returning to the land, I can declare to you without a shadow of doubt that there were many thousands more whom the Spirit of God were stirring to go back but you know what they did? They quenched them. They quenched them. And they didn't obey. <sighs> but you know why Ezra's written? To tell us about those who did obey. About those who did obey. One of the reasons why I think the books of Ezra and Nehemiah get skipped in the Bible story books is because when we turn to chapter 2, guess what it is? Now, these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity. And then it goes, and it gives all kinds of names and numbers and names. And Oh, do you see it? Why, look at this. It's not just 10 verses of names or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. It's 70 whole verses mostly of names and numbers of people we have no idea who they are. And so we think that's boring. But you know, I think this is exciting. You know why? 
uh, I agree with you. These names are hard, <laughs> and the numbers are hard. And, you know, I love, the, I love the engineers in our world who take all these guys, and they put them out on charts and graphs, and you can find people who do that. And they get it, they, you, know the, you, know the, you know the famous scientist Isaac Newton? He obsessed over Ezra and Nehemiah. These chapters, he just, he just ate them up. He created charts and charts, and he compares the charts here with these charts and these charts. And you know what? He found out that there are contradictions. But it didn't, he, he had to find a solution because he actually believed the Bible was true. And so his scientific mind had to find the solutions of these supposed contradictions. And he obsessed over these numbers. And actually, to this day, we benefit from his scientific mind processing all of these numbers and details and he was an apologist of his day that continues his legacy actually to this very day. He's, he was able to come with some solutions or offer some solutions to what some people say are contradictions. And he presented some pretty interesting solutions to it. But, you know, chapter 2 of Ezra, chapter 7, I think, of Nehemiah, these aren't boring chapters. You know what I think is exciting about them? I already said one reason. Because... Because these are the ones who obeyed. Isn't that exciting? God, God cares about who obeys, who obeys his spirit when his spirit moves. But you know the other thing that it tells me? God loves people. God loves me. Now, if you think that books of names are boring, you're going to miss out on the most incredible book ever to exist. Do you know what is the most incredible actual bound book ever to exist? There's only one copy. Anybody know? Well, let's see if somebody else, we already had this conversation, so that's kind of cheating. Yes, what do you think? Isaiah, she thinks that's a great book. Oh, that's a great book, but that's not the book I'm thinking of. Think of a book where there's only one copy and it's an actual book. Yes. The book of life. Yeah. Is the book of life boring? Wait a minute. Did you think chapter 2 of Ezra is boring? Oh, some of you are honest. Thank you. Depends if your name's in it or not. Yeah, I think the book of life is an exciting book because my name's in it. Is your name in it? And you know what's absolutely amazing? Is that in the book of life and even in here, God knows how to pronounce every single name in the preferred pronunciation. God, God has us all known. And he loves every one of us. And he knows everything about us. I see chapter 2 as a list, really, just even of numbering, the counting, not even the names. Just the counting of those who obeyed. It's a glorious and precious thought to me that the book of life is God's own personal book where he's recorded the names of all those who have obeyed his spirit, stirring up their hearts to obey the gospel. The gospel is, starts with bad news, Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us have broken God's law. Every one of us deserve judgment in the lake of fire. If we were judged by our works, our works would be declared as filthy rags. 
profiting us nothing. In fact, they'd condemn us. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to this earth, and he died for everyone. Imagine what that book's like. Of everyone, and he died for everyone. He took our sins upon himself. And the Spirit of God has worked and continues to work all through history and right now, moving in heart, saying, will you believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again for you and will give you life? And if you believe on him, he will write your name with the preferred spelling and all, I think, in his book of life. That's how much he cares. That's how much he cares. He cares about people, and he wants people, people, to be recorded in his book of life, those who have obeyed his Spirit's stirring. So how is the Spirit of God working in your heart? Did you obey this morning? I don't think God's calling any of the Vanderwerfs back to the Netherlands. See, there's a difference. Joseph, don't worry. There's no Isaiah or Jeremiah who said, hey, the Mwangi family, they're going to go to America for 70 years, and after 70 years, they're supposed to go back to Kenya. There are no commands like that. No commands like that. Aren't you glad? Because Shalom, I don't think, wants to go to, back to the Netherlands. She likes her little farm, right? Nathan, you want to go back to the Netherlands? You like your farm? Yeah, he does too. There's no command that specific like that, but they had a command specific. We too have commands that are given in the Word of God. And the Spirit of God oftentimes will move in our hearts, and will we obey? Will we obey? And then there's other times in which he moves in our hearts that are not necessarily tied to a specific command. You know? Maybe God might just call one of you, one of you, to Kenya. The Reigns family, why, <laughs> they're not from Kenya. They have no tie to Kenya. But God called their family. The Spirit of God stirred in their hearts to say, go to Kenya for the gospel's sake. And they obeyed his calling, and God is using them in Kenya. How is God using you? And don't just think of it in the big missionary calls, things that move across the world. It may be that just little simple thing that you get up tomorrow morning and you walk into the kitchen and you see that yesterday was a hard day. I'm getting real personal here. And the kitchen's a mess. And the Spirit says, you can do something about that. You can help your mom so that when she gets down here, it's all taken care of. Now, my house, my wife has trouble going to sleep with a messy kitchen. And uh, that's her own struggle she's got to deal with. She does, she does a marvelous job at it. Because um, sometimes it's like, just go to bed, honey. It'll be there in the morning. And other times it's like, yep, let's get it done tonight. But how do we, when the Spirit moves, do we obey? Do we obey? Do we obey? He doesn't only move in the international scene of migration of peoples. He moves in the little, tiny things, as simple as, hey, 
go do those dishes for your mom. How is the Spirit moving? In this day, the people went. The people, 50,000 people went back to the promised land. They took charges of gold and silver and knives. They brought a lot of the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. Just as a note, as you're kind of getting confused with some of these people, we've got Cyrus, king of Persia, and we've got Zerubbabel, who is the prince of Judah, who is actually in line to be king, but he never became king. He was just a prince. Never became king. And then we've got a guy named Joshua. Who is Joshua? Joshua is the high priest. Joshua is the high priest going to be used of God to help rebuild this temple. Well, look with me here as we see in verse 68 of chapter 2. Not everyone went. Many did. You know, some had developed, though they left 70 years before with nothing as captives, some of them in chains, now, 70 years later, some of these families are wealthy. For it tells us some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. Not only did they come themselves, but they brought of their wealth that they had accumulated over the past 70 years to set up the house of God. But you know what? God God notates that it's not just about the rich. You know, there's rich people who, who help to build things and do things, but you know, not everybody's rich. And you might say, see, if I were rich, I could help. You know what God identifies here? If you look here in verse 69, for it tells us that they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work. What does that mean? They gave, they gave after their ability. What's that mean? That means that some were able to give lots of gold to the treasure, and some were only able to give a little bit, and some maybe weren't able to give anything, perhaps only but of their time and labor. They gave after their ability. You know, this teaches us some things about giving here in this. If we glance across the page of chapter 3, in verse 5, we find out that there were those who everyone, they willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. You know what free will means? It means they had the choice to give or not to give. Right here, we see here a basic principle of giving. Giving to the work of God and giving to help others. The basic principle is, is that we give according to our ability and we give free will and willingly. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 because in the New Testament, this same truth is taught. We see it illustrated here in the days of Zerubbabel, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, gives an entire dissertation, in fact, the whole chapter, about giving. We got a weird thing 
I think, in America. So much giving is obligatory. Have you ever heard this? Well, I have to get so-and-so a gift because they got me a gift. Then you get other people who say, I'm not going to fall prey to that trap. <laughs> and that's just as bad. What is the balance? I'm going to give you the clue. It has to do with the Spirit of God. Trust Him and ask Him what He would have you to do. But look here at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. It says here, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You see, he tells us that it's good to give. For in fact, in verse 6, it says, But I say, he which soweth sparingly, that means that you sow just a little bit of seed, you give just a little bit, stingingly, you'll reap also sparingly, stingily. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. But isn't it interesting, right after God gives this basic principle of generous giving, he cautions us and says, well, but wait, it's as you purpose in your heart. You have a free will. How will you purpose to give? What will you give? So give from a free will as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or necessity, feeling like, oh, I got to do this. But no, God loves a cheerful giver. So how will you give this day, this week? Will you sow bountifully or stingily? What is your ability? What will you do with the ability God has given to you? How will you sow? How will you sow? Well, we continue on in some lessons here. Back to the history. Cyrus has been stirred up by the Spirit of God to fulfill prophecy. He makes a decree. You can go back to the land. Almost 50,000 go back to the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the prince of <clears throat> Judah, and Joshua, the high priest, they begin to make plans to rebuild this temple. They lay an altar there on Mount Zion, where it should be. And as soon as they arrive, they begin to restore the worship of Jehovah, and they begin to offer sacrifices. They begin to observe the sacred holidays and feasts of the Jews, the feasts of tabernacles. They celebrate that year, and they have plans to rebuild the temple. But when they arrived, you see, it took them a long time. It took them a long time to get all the way from Babylon back to Judah because they didn't just jump on an airplane and fly or, you know, get on a train and right here, arrive. It took them months to gather together, to travel as caravans to this land, to begin to even set up temporary shelter. There were no hotels. There were nothing. It was ruins and so in this time, they're rebuilding. They're trying to survive in shacks. And they're trying to make plans. But in it, you see, the first thing they establish is worship. You know, that's a lesson for us. That's a lesson for us. 
our lives may be in ruins. I don't think many of us have had our houses burned down, though some of us have had fires in our house, right? Your life in some way is in ruins. Do you know what the father of lies tries to tell you? You don't have time to go gather and assemble with believers and worship God because you got too many things you need to do. So just stay home and focus on this and that. That's a lie. In the days when things are in ruins, the first thing you need to do is set up an altar and yield up yourself a living sacrifice and say, God, you're first. And you are great. And if I'm going to figure out the shambles of my mess, you've got to be first. That's how Zerubbabel, that's how Joshua the high priest led the nation of Israel. The first thing they did was restore the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem even before the temple was built. And what's incredible, some of these, fan, these little details that people get all hung up on actually is they're not just restoring the worship, but they're restoring it God's way. They're even being careful that if they don't have accurate genealogical records as to who is a priest and who isn't a priest, they say, play safe than sorry. They're going to follow God's way and do it his way. That's important too. We don't create a fake worship. We do worship God in his holiness that is beauty, that is set apart. Worship is the core. Coming back to praising and worshiping God is the core, even when and especially when things are a disaster. Can I give you a practical idea? Don't. When God has commanded something, don't wait till the moment of action to decide whether you're not going, whether or not you're going to obey. God has said to Christian people, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves, but rather so much the more gather together as you see the day approaching. Assembling with God's people is not a decision you should be deciding whether or not you make every single Sunday morning. God said it. I'll do it. It's in my plan. It's part of my schedule. You know what? I don't have to wait for the Spirit to move me to assemble with God's people on the first day of the week. Because he's already said to. There's no doubt about it. Now, where his Spirit comes into play is when you were up all night with that baby. <laughs> You've been there? And you're like, I'm too tired. No judgment here if the Spirit leads you to stay home, okay? But I'll also tell you that even in those moments when you feel like you can't, I have experienced what I call the second wind. Now, I think that's a term used in the sports world. I don't know where I got it. But there is a time in which I find myself without power, without strength. And I don't feel like I have anything in me to obey, to do what I know God wants me to do today. And that's when I get the second wind. You know what it really is? It ain't a second wind. It's the wind of the Spirit. The wind of the Spirit of God. 
I'll be perfectly blunt with you. Last night I got through the end of the day, just so you know, I feel like I was teaching the introduction to Ezra just yesterday morning. This week is poof. And as I thought through this day today, I didn't want to stand up here today. I am utterly exhausted. Exhausted. I can only be here because of the second wind. Or really, the first wind. The wind of the Holy Spirit helping me to do what I know he wants me to do. But you know, sometimes the Spirit says, you know, you just need to stay in bed. And in those times, I also have to say, Stephen, God wants you to stay in bed today. Obey. Don't just try to move forward. These are the things that God is leading us in. Will we obey? Do we obey the Spirit's leading? Here in the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the people had a disaster, but yet they obeyed God and moved forward. They moved forward. Some people have read this all, and it's kind of funny. I don't think they understand how things work. I'm for one. I read a commentary once that made a comment about how terrible it was that these people got back to the land and they waited so long to lay the foundations. Well, um, you know what? The hint as to why they didn't lay the foundations instantaneously is because they um, didn't have all the money yet. And, oh, by the way, once they had all of this money, look at verse 7 of chapter 3. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil and to them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa. That's the port city of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. The truth is, the reason why they waited seven months to lay the foundation is because they didn't have anything to lay the foundation. They didn't have any stones. They didn't have any cedar. They didn't have anything. So it took them seven months to collect all of the stones and the masons and the quarries and gather those stones or to clean the stones that were in shambles to recycle and to get the cedars. It took them seven months. They were working on all those things. And then in that second year, they laid that foundation. There is recorded in Ezra. It was in the second month that they laid this foundation and they brought together all of the people I'd like to bring your attention to one little phrase in here that I think actually has practical application still to us today in something significant. Even the secular world recognizes something in here. Look with me at verse 8. I'm going to read it. Now, in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the prince. Joshua was the high priest. And the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. They're moving forward in this work. Now, I said there's something in here that's kind of interesting and I think has relevancy to us today. Do you see that number? In the United States of America, we have something called age of majority. You know what that is? What's the age of majority in the United States of America? 
you guys probably know it better as legal age. What's the legal age in America? 18. Well, it's 21 for alcohol in some states, you're right. There's a reason for that, too. Why is it 18? Here it's 20. You'll find throughout the Old Testament that there is an age more appropriately called the age of accountability. And it's interesting because it happens and it occurs in these major kinds of events in which there is a massive call for people to do what God wants them to do. Kadesh Barnea, does that mean, what does that mean? Does that mean, if that means something to you, can you raise your hand? I wanna know if I need to explain it. Okay, Kadesh Barnea, the children of Israel have left Egypt, they're going to the promised land. They have the option to move forward into the promised land or go back to Egypt. What are they gonna do? Everyone had a choice. There's an age of an accountability. That age is 20 years old. All of those who were 20 years old and older had a choice. Will you believe God who has promised you this land and has said, I will give it to you and not a man will be able to stand against you? Or will you be one who says, ah, there's giants in the land, we're grasshoppers, we want to go back to slavery. If you were over the age of 20, which was the age of accountability, you were directly responsible to God for your actions. And at Kadesh Barnea, if you chose to side with those who wanted to go back to Egypt, you died in that wilderness, and you never saw that promised land. If you were 20 years old and older and you said, I believe God, let's go to that promised land, you got to see the promised land. Guess how many people believed God and saw that promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Two. Here we see a call of accountability in the days of Ezra relating to the ministry of the priesthood. We have a responsibility to obey God. Now, if you're under 20, that doesn't give you some kind of a pass. You all hear me? Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work is right and whether it be good. You're still accountable to God even as a child. But you have an accountability to mom or dad or your God-given authorities as well. And they have a responsibility to guide you and lead you. But boy, when you're 20, even America says when you're 18, things change. You're held far higher accountability. Just imagine in America. Do you know the penalties for crimes committed at 18 or older are far more severe than those crimes committed under 18? Why? Same reason. There is a higher accountability held. You have a choice. You have a relationship directly to obey God. So I'm going to give you a little hint. Don't wait till you're 20. Start when you're this age learning to obey God. Seek wise counsel from mom and dad. Moms and dads, teach your children this age to start obeying God. 
I can remember very distinctly a time in my life where my dad's relationship with me shifted in a good way. My dad had a very structured idea. It wasn't rigid. It was flexible because it's not all just about ages. But when you were this tall, instructions were given, and there was very little room for question or answer. Just obey. And mommy and daddy had to decide what was appropriate in ability and skill and strength. And you know what? Sometimes mommy and daddy's made mistakes. I know I do. But the point here is learn to obey. Just obey. And a little bit taller, it was still just obey. But you could ask questions, and you'd get answers. Sometimes my dad would say, we'll talk about it later. Just obey. That was important, too. But there was a very distinct time in my life when I can remember that dad rarely would look at me and say, just obey. And he would reason with me, and he would appeal to me to make the decision myself. It was about 12 years old, a little older than 12. He shifted. He shifted how he worked with me. And it was no longer commands, but was reasoning. And when I turned 18, dad kind of applied it at 18 because he's like, you know what, it's the way it works legally, but my mom held it to 20 strict. It changed entirely. Dad very abruptly became very much in this way. It's on you, Stephen. And he would give advice, and he'd long for advice to be asked, but it was very much where he held me accountable for me to make the decisions that I had to make. And I said, my mom had a hard time. She's sitting here, so I got to be careful. She held to this 20 really strict. It was a weird thing. I was, I was an exception kid. How many of you guys have exception kids in your house? My mom wanted us not to get driver's license till we were 20. Yeah. Um, but you know what? My grandma had a hard time seeing and couldn't drive anywhere, and then she lost her license. So I got my license at like 17 so I could drive Graham at all her doctor's appointments. I still have siblings who I think resent me for that. But, you know, and, and there's a sense in which my mom held this 20, and there's some significance to it. I, I think that our society has said it is 18, so be it. But here's the key. For moms and dads, recognize there's an accountability here at 20. But as young people, it's on you on you. So start practicing down here. Because when you make the mistakes down here, the consequences are far less serious than when you get to this age of accountability. I believe both in the eyes of God, and I believe also, well, definitely in the eyes of the state. So start practicing. And moms and dads, help your children in that way, so that it's not like just, ta-ta! You're an adult, here's your social security card and your birth certificate. Go ruin your life. That's not what you want to be doing either. Are we shepherding our children so that when they reach this age of accountability or of age of majority in the state's eyes, that they are functioning as responsible men and women before God? Before God. Now, i got to give one other note here so in case somebody doesn't try to misquote me. 
There's a proverb that says, despise not thy mother when she is old. Mom, you're not old. But that means that, you know, she's planning on living like, you know, as old as her, her dad or mom. It's into the 90s. Or, hey, she's got a great aunt that lived 113. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records. So she might live a long time. So though my mom knows and understands the age of accountability here side of things, I'm going to obey the proverb that says, despise not thy mother when she is old. Receive the instruction of thy father. It's not like, again, you hit 20 and, bye, mom and dad. I'm on my own. I'm a man. Read your Bible. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. There's still a wisdom that should come from mom and dad. But at the end of the day, you, you are responsible. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got from my dad rings and echoes in my mind all the time. You're not responsible for the actions of others. You're responsible for what you do. It's where it is. Responsible before God. This nation had a question, would they obey? Would they obey and go back to the land? 50,000 obeyed. I know I'm rounding the number up. 50,000 obeyed. How is the Spirit of God moving in your life today? What are commands God has given you today, this week, that you can obey? Don't quench the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we bow to you and give thanks to you for your goodness, your grace, and your Spirit. We are weak. We are frail. We are tired. We can't keep going in our own strength. Lord, I pray that even when we are strong, we would not keep going in our own strength, but that we would go in the strength of your Spirit. For it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit, you declare. And no matter what the mountain is, we have to climb or move. We can do by faith in obedience to you and to by your Spirit. Help us to do what's right. Help us to know our accountability before you directly. We commit ourselves to you in this day as we praise you. We worship you. For you alone are worthy of worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.